We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. All citizens in the metropolitan area to stay off the streets until further notice. This is an emergency. I repeat, this is an emergency. A man deeply contaminated with radioactivity has been reported missing from the astrophysical laboratories. Anyone coming near him is subject to danger of radiation. Officials from the laboratories report that the radius of the danger zone is constantly increasing. Let me repeat, all citizens in the metropolitan area are to stay off the streets until further notice. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. In 2013, director Joe Dante said on Trailers from Hell, whenever the talk turns to bad movies, as it occasionally does here on Trailers from Hell, you have to sort of think about the different gradations of movies. There are bad movies, there are worse movies, there are unspeakable movies, and then there are movies that are so bad that they don't really rise to the level of being a movie. Today we have one of those, the Insomnia Cure Monster Agogo. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and if I sound a little strange today, it's because I'm suffering from a cold, but I'm going to see if I can get through this. And I'll be your host for this week's show, and seeing that it's the fourth Monday of the month, that means we're going to talk about a film that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. In the first half of the show, I'll be talking about the film itself, and then Nancy will join us a bit later to talk about how Joel and the Bots treated the film. And, like I said, for today's show, we're going to look at Bill Rabane's 1965 classic monster, Agogo. Or is it Herschel Gordon Lewis's classic? Now, a little tip for young filmmakers out there. Sound is very important. Sound is almost more important than picture. And ADR is not that hard. Okay, got it? In other words, there's no excuse for what I sat through today. When I'm about the castle, theorizing, but I'm trying to find an answer. So, here I am. Did you come up with anything? Take a look. You know enough about these things. You know, when I first came up with this podcast, one of the first rules I gave myself is to always try to be positive about every film I talk about. But I can't today. It's impossible. This film is just so mind-numbingly bad that I, I, I have no words. I mean, I started writing down every bad scene. But if I did that, I would talk for four hours because every scene is bad. There's not one scene in this film that I can say shows any bit of quality. You couldn't intentionally make a movie this bad. There's long, pointless scenes that go nowhere and have nothing to do with the story, and the few bits of the story that might be exciting are done off-camera, and we just hear the characters talking about them. And half the dialogue is impossible to understand because the sound is so horrific. And the end, well, uh, okay, okay, back, okay. The origins of this movie begin with Bill Rabane. 
Bill was born on February 8, 1937 in Riga, Latvia, and later he attended the Art Institute of Chicago slash Goodman Theater, majoring in drama. He worked for Chicago's WGN for years, and he had something to do with inventing the cinema process known as Cinetarium, which I guess is some sort of circular motion picture process. I don't know. For a while, Rebain worked for Herschel Gordon Lewis's commercial studio making industrial films. As Lewis put it, as a kid doing part-time sales in 1969. He produced a few short films, but after watching Lewis independently shoot his risque feature, The Prime Time in 1960 in Chicago, he decided to make his own feature. What changes the delicate interlocking of fates that determines life or death? A series of ifs. So in 1961, he decided, in his own words, to create a screenplay that would have some timeliness and exploitation values. He came up with something called Terror at Half Day. When asked where the name Terror at Half Day came from, he responded, I had bought my first house in Wheeling, Illinois, and had commuted through Half Day back and forth to Chicago. Half Day was a little villa just past Wheeling, and the name intrigued me. Now I have to stop for a second. See, I've lived in that area my whole life. And while Half Day is north of Wheeling, and Chicago is south of Wheeling, so I'm not really sure what kind of commute he was doing, but I have no doubt that's where the name came from. He funded the production with $10,000 of his own money and combined it with $50,000 from investors. Now, strangely, he almost got a huge Hollywood star to take a role. Rabain recalled, During the pre-production casting of the picture, I was hanging out on Randolph Street one rainy day in Chicago with my associate and press agent with a lot of guts, Larry Leveterate. And we were late to some meetings, so we were rushing and practically ran over this other trench-coated man, also rushing to get under the marquee and out of the downpour. The trench-coat-wearing man happened to be Ronald Reagan. Larry and I had few inhibitions in those days. Subsequently, we blurted out the whole concept of terror at half-day to Ronald Reagan, standing there together under the marquee of the Woods Theater. We not only recited a synopsis, but we made sure to tell Ronald Reagan that Judy Travis was committed to the picture and that he would be the perfect star for our own picture. He wanted to see a script, and he asked us to work out the deal with his agent, whose name he carefully wrote on a piece of paper for us. He said that if we could work it out, he might be interested. Well, they weren't able to get Ronald Reagan to be in the film, but they were able to get a man named Henry Height. Henry was born Henry Marion Mullins and lived from 1915 to 1978. Henry billed himself as the world's tallest man at 8 feet 2 inches, though his actual height was said to be 7 feet 6 and 3 quarter inches. He was known for making personal appearances, promoting the Corn King brand as the Corn King Giant. He had previously been a part of a vaudeville act, where he changed his name to Height as part of Low Height and Stanley. Stanley Ross was a little person. Roland Picaro, who was known as Low, was of average height. And of course, Henry was huge. Rebane knew Height and said that Height made a perfect monster without elaborate special effects or prosthetics. Herschel Gordon Lewis said of Height, Height was living in a hotel room on Rush Street in Chicago and was really down on his luck. 
His physical condition was not too good at the time either. His ankles had reached the point where they could no longer support his weight. It was very difficult for him to walk due to his size and lack of physical condition. He was a charming chap and was always looking back fondly at the good old days in which he and his two partners had been able to stand on the stage and perform their act. Along with height, Rebane was able to land the talents of Julie Travis. I've got the most peculiar feeling that something's terribly wrong. Ever since Frank was lost, maybe it's nothing, call it feminine intuition, but when Carl told me the capsule had come back, I... I almost expected it. Julie lived from 1914 to 2008 and was the daughter of Henry Grabenier, vice president of the Chicago White Sox in the 1930s. She studied at UCLA and then at the University of Chicago. She had been offered a contract with Paramount Pictures after a Paramount vice president noticed her in Miami, Florida at a White Sox exhibition game. But she suffered from stage fright and returned to Chicago. But she ended up being an actress, appearing in such films as Stranded from 1935, Ceiling Zero from 36, The Case of the Black Cat from 36, and Love is in the Air from 1937. She said of her appearance in Monster A Go-Go, Oh, please, woof, that's an embarrassment. I was in Chicago when they thought I had somewhat of a name. They knew they had a lousy picture, but they thought maybe my name would help it. It didn't. Me? A name? Fooled them, didn't I? But oh my God, that's an embarrassment. Well, I wouldn't take it seriously. What did I care? I didn't have a career then. I was out of it, and you know, it was fun to do. I had no idea about any aftermath or afterburn. And then she laughed. There wasn't anyway. I'm amazed too that I'm in it. It didn't make it any better or any worse. Anyway, the details of making this film are a little sparse, but as far as I can tell, Bill Rabane began filming it in 1961 and quickly ran out of money. According to Stephen Thrower, in his essay, From Loftia to Wisconsin, the song remains Rabane, Rabane's problems on terror with Half Day began when he hired a full union crew, only to find out that paying industrial standard wages drained his budget after only a single week's shooting. Now, as far as I can tell, he returned to the film in 1963, but some of the actors, such as Peter M. Thompson, were no longer available. I would like to examine the body as soon as possible. In fact, he only had Thompson for two weeks originally. So with the help of Dick Stanford, they wrote a new script and began filming new scenes with other actors. Does that bring me up to date? As far as the tragedies, what do you mean? Well, for the last eight weeks, nothing has happened. Whatever came back in that capsule has disappeared. Robane got about three-fourths of the film completed, and then again he ran out of money, and the film sat in a lab for years until Herschel Gordon Lewis came across it. Now, according to Lewis, he had shot some of the footage for the original film, including the footage on Lower Wacker Drive. Herschel Gordon Lewis lived from 1926 to 2016 and was known as the godfather of gore. He was best known for creating the splatter subgenre of horror films. He was known for such classics as Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, and The Gruesome Twosome. 
Basically, his films were nudie cuties or films loaded with as much gore as possible. In 1961, he had just made a movie called Moonshine Mountain and was looking for a second film to use in a double feature. He explained why this was necessary. At the time, the drive-in theaters were the best risk for our money. In order to control film rentals, one had to have both sides of a double feature. If you only had one picture, they would throw another picture in against yours and invariably tell both producers, oh, well, the other picture was the key feature and gets the percentage. Your feature only gets a flat amount of money. A person who came in with both sides of the double feature didn't have to face that problem. I needed another movie because I only had one. Lewis thought it would be easy to purchase this film, which, as far as he knew, was almost done, but he found out otherwise. Well, I thought, if there was 8,000 feet of film, there has to be a movie in there somewhere. I was wrong. I simply bought it, the uncut negative. It turns out he had cut the slates off, which made editing very difficult. But with the entire movie he had there, there was no film there. We had to shoot a thousand feet of film of hands opening telegrams, feet walking, trying to flesh it out with a little narration over it. He made it a deadly serious picture. There wasn't much of a movie, no climax or anything, so I turned it into a parody called Monster A Go-Go and we used it as a second half with Moonshine Mountain. When he was asked if he brought back Henry Height to film any additional footage, Lewis said, no, I didn't. I only filmed footsteps, books, telegrams, and stuff that didn't require talent. I had been the cameraman, as you may recall, or some of this picture when it was originally shot. The movie, as I remember, was shot spasmodically from time to time as financing became available. I remember shooting under Wacker Drive in Chicago where traffic was just going by us. One example of Herschel Gordon Lewis's footage is during the scene where Chris and Ruth are out for drinks and Chris gets a phone call. Now I'm assuming there's a scene missing in which Chris actually talks on the phone, but since there is no scene, there's a close-up shot of the martini glass where a lady's hand removes the olive, apparently to eat it. This quick shot was obviously added to create space from which the time Chris left to get the phone call and came back to the table. Now, Herschel Gordon Lewis didn't put his name in the credits of Monster A Go-Go. Instead, he used the moniker Sheldon S. Seymour, a name he used often when he didn't want to use his own name. And he is credited as producer, as well as providing additional dialogue. It is said that he even narrated the film himself. Joe Dante said on Trailers From Hell, Herschel Gordon Lewis, the author of Blood Feast, apparently needed a cheap second feature specifically designed for grindhouse drunks to sleep through, and he did a patch job on it. He did a brief dance scene and called it Monster A Go-Go. Well, that's funny, Joe. I'll have to say that I think the dancing was part of the original Tear at Half Day because it leads to one of the killings with Henry Height. Now, the film opens with a rockin' tune, and that's sort of the highlight of the film.
And then there's a narrator that brings us up to speed. What you're about to see may not even be possible within the narrow limits of human understanding. Case in point, a space capsule is rocketed into orbit on schedule. Its mission, to observe new objects circling the Earth, satellites which no nation had launched. As the capsule reached its orbit, communications with it suddenly went silent. But at least the film had the good decency to let us know just how bad the audio was going to be within the first two minutes. This is Patrol 2 to Connors. Come in, Connors. Over. This is Connors. Come in, Patrol 2. I've spotted something. Looks like it might be our stray lamb. I'm going down to have a closer look. Roger, Patrol 2. We may have found something. So the plot is about Colonel Steve Connors, played by Phil Morris, who is sent to investigate a space capsule that has crashed on Earth that is barely big enough for a rhesus monkey to sit in. The astronaut from the space capsule has disappeared. There's a man, Jim, a helicopter pilot that is killed off camera. Now apparently the astronaut who has grown to 10 feet tall is roaming around the countryside and for some unknown reason kills whoever it comes across. And for about the first half hour of this 68-minute film, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's horribly boring with horrendous sound, shot in Chicagoland during the ugliest time of the year, but the plot makes some sense, I guess. And suddenly we are introduced to a bunch of new characters with long, boring scenes, and I'm assuming this is where Rebane returned to shooting the film years later without the original cast. Dr. Brett? Dr. Kramer. With deepest respect. I'm glad to know you. I feel Dr. Brennan on the details, but, well, let's get to the larger issue. Floor is yours, Now, the only thing I can think of that would be more boring than this so-called plot would be to tell you the plot of the so-called film. Like a long scene in which a lady's car runs out of gas and she gets helped by a man in a truck that seems to have nothing to do with the plot itself that shouldn't even be in there. In all the ending scenes on Lower Wecker Drive that just go on and on. I tell you, this film is a little over an hour and it seems like five hours. Because the thing is, there's no character development. And the plot never advances at all. And at the end of the film, we don't know any more about, well, anything. Nothing happens. Blame it on my state of shock or, or my concern for Douglas's condition. And don't even start me on the music for this film. This is what we're subjected to throughout the film. And you know, when you're making a film, one might have a crew person make a sound for an object in the film with the idea that in post, these sounds will be replaced. In the short films I've made, I've had people doing things like making the sound of a telephone during shooting and during the Foley work during editing, the real sound of a telephone ringing is added. Colonel Connors. Herschel Gordon Lewis, when you were putting this abomination together, would it have been so difficult to spend two minutes and add the sound of a real ringing phone? I ask you, how hard would that have been? Joe Dante, again on Trailers from Hell, said, 
most porno films are better than this. Andy added, The twist ending is even worse than the rest of the picture, but I defy you to get that far. And I'll argue that the end was neither a twist or an ending. It was just a cop-out to finish it, because the ending was never finished. Astronaut Frank Douglas, rescued, alive, well, and of normal size, some 8,000 miles away in a lifeboat, with no memory of where he has been or how he was separated from his capsule. Then who, or what, has landed here? Is it here yet, or has the cosmic switch been pulled? When he was asked what the end of Terror at Half Day was supposed to be, Rebane answered, I just can't remember how it was supposed to turn out. Knowing myself and knowing where I wanted to go in life with movies, I would have to guess that it was going to be a happy and good ending. I don't even think I have a copy of the script. In an interview, Herschel Gordon Lewis said, Years and years later, long after I had forgotten this peccadillo, I got a call from Bill Rebane. He told me that Turner Classic Movies wanted to show Monster a go-go. I said, don't you have some pictures of your kids? They'd do much better showing those. Well, anyway, I've talked long enough. Wow, I went on and on there. You know, it's a lot more fun talking about this film than actually watching it. But now we're going to turn to Nancy Fry, and she's going to let us know what Joel and the Bots thought about this film on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mystery Science Theater 3000, show 421, real one. This week's film was covered in season four of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and it is a tour de force of memorable moments. It is, in my opinion, one of the best episodes of classic MST ever produced. From the host segments, to the short, to the feature, it's just a work of high art. Well, it's high art if you love films riffed by chill Midwesterners, which I do. There isn't a week, if not a day, that goes by without me quoting a bit from Monster Agogo riffs, or singing something to the tune of Johnny Longtorso. I should probably see a medical professional at some point, but at this stage in my life, the damage is done. With the intro, the bots have taken an idea way too far, as per usual, and started a cheese factory. I was just trying to expand the realm of snacking when I realized just how vital cheese is to a sound economy. And from now on, you're going to see actual cheese made right here on the premises. Here's the way! Thanks, Gypsy! Thanks, girl! For the invention exchange, Dr. Forrester has declared an action figure contest. His and Frank's entries are suitably dark and exploitative, with a doll sold a la carte. By the time you buy each piece, you've spent hundreds of dollars. Introducing Johnny Longtorso, the doll who is himself sold separately. Johnny Longtorso, Johnny Longtorso, the man who comes in pieces. He's long. Joel and the bots have come up with clever historical and otherwise educational entries. Tom has the Earl of Oxford, contemporary of William Shakespeare. Gypsy has Olympic track star Wilma Rudolph. 
and Crow is Crow. Okay, Crow, who's this cool guy over here? Oh, he's just the host organism, but hey, look in his mouth. Yeah. Introducing Woodscrew Tapeworm. He lives out his life cycle in the entrails of the host body until he's expelled or dies. Cool, a parasite. Just yeah. look at the detail. Yeah, the digestive tract's as exciting as the Amazon jungle. There's danger, adventure, and half-digested food around every curve. Wow, I want to play with this one right now. Since TV's Frank is the judge, the Mads win. In case you were wondering what the Invention Exchange or any of the subsequent host segments have to do with either the following short or the feature film, they don't. I'll quote from MST writer Paul Chaplin, who covers this entry in the Amazing Colossal Episode Guide. This episode was the first time we decided explicitly to write sketches having nothing to do with the movie. Really, we had no choice. We ran through a long string of topics. But, since the movie is about nothing, any topic that is about something cannot, by definition, have anything to do with this movie. Interesting philosophical dilemma. I think we solved it nicely. By nicely, they basically went full Ernie Kovacs and just let their imaginations run wild. Then, all of a sudden, it's movie sign, and it starts off with a bang. I was a school kid long after these types of mini-documentaries would have been shown before feature films in the theater, and a decade or so after the heyday of these things being shown in school as a special treat. I have vague memories of my mom taking me and my sister to see the Ice Follies sometime in the late 60s or early 70s. This is the film record of a community theater-level version of that. Circus on Ice enthusiastically brings us the glamorous world of amateur ice theatrics. It's basically a series of Busby Berkeley dance numbers complete with attempts at lavish costumes which don't always yield a satisfying effect. Still, you can tell lots of effort went into the production, and when your audience is moms and grandmas and your local church congregations, you're guaranteed polite applause. These two girls, they make quite a pair. They both come from your worst nightmare. They will haunt your soul forever. And now, when you see pink, you're gonna think we're doomed. They are agents of Stop Satan. Candy on ice. That's nice. After the break, it's feature time. Voiceovers are often used in low-budget films as a cost-saving measure, and they almost always come across as intrusive and pompous. This one is no exception. What you're about to see may not even be possible within the narrow limits of human understanding. So let's forget it right now. The music in this thing was obviously commissioned for this film. Minimalism can be a cool, see any John Carpenter film, tool. But whomever did this takes that idea to a whole new level. So the government drives stock Chevys? I think it's a Biscay. Ooh. Oh yeah, this is when NASA was just a car and a helicopter, right? Mm. Storefront in a strip mall. Yeah, in a vacant lot. Okay, now cut that out! The riffers have plenty to comment on as we go along. Well, thank goodness Les Paul is backing them up on guitar. Soon, we're yanked into our first jump cut scene change. 
right into some lady's living room where NASA suit guy brings the bad news to astronaut Frank's wife, girlfriend. It's not clear at first. This whole scene is played so melodramatically that you expect organ music at any moment. No, I can't take any more. Oh, look, let's not make a bigger deal out of this than it really is. Ah! What's that? Face like spinach dip? Horribly mangled? No dental records? Mm, too bad. All right, now, I'll be right over. Well, looks like he died in a state of sin. Oh, Sorry. It's okay to the camp. Two words, closed casket. I'll let you know as soon as I find out. Wait, Carl, I, I want to go mm. with you. Honey, you'll call if there is any news. No, I want to be with you. For the next host segment, we have a teenagery angst scene where Gypsy bemoans the fact that she just doesn't understand Crow. He tries to answer her questions, but eventually gives up in frustration. When she turns to Tom with the same issue, he has a quick answer. Tom? Yo. I don't get you. Nobody does. I'm the wind, baby. Back to the film and more random electric guitar notes at odd moments. I didn't get a clip of any of these particular ones because, well, why bother, you know? It's literally just one note that drops in occasionally. After examining another corpse in a field and an attempt at sciency forensic dialogue, we jump to a lab at NASA? Who knows? As per usual in these kinds of films, it just visually reads as somebody's high school or a votech somewhere standing in for government or hospital buildings. It's never very convincing. Also worth noting is that every scene shot on this particular set has terrible sound. It's like they couldn't get a boom mic on that day or something? I don't know. The best moment comes in a later scene, though. Next, we're clobbered by another jarring jump cut. First, we're treated to a mundane, chatty moment of a new investigator being picked up at the airport by some guys in uniform. It's literally all small talk, chit-chat nonsense. Then they all pile into one of the film's signature tuna boat sedans and drive off. Then cut to the dance floor of some local eatery, dive, club, who knows. Where are we? I don't know. Who are these people? Who knows? Joel is optimistic. I'm pretty sure this is where the movie really takes off. This is the uh, go-go part. Whoa, he's got an action torso there. <laughs> I'm dancing. A jealous boyfriend pulls his chick off the dance floor and hauls her out to his car. As he opens the door, it's time for another odd musical sting. That's a strange car alarm. Django Reinhardt tunes up his guitar. Of course, they stop to make out, and V.O. Guy is on the job. What changes yeah. the delicate interlocking of fates that determines life or death? A series of ifs. Ands or buts. If the girl had danced with her boyfriend instead of the other boy, mm -hmm. and they had stayed uh -huh. later, fate and history <laughs> never deal in ifs. I'm hearing your internal monologue, honey. Unsurprisingly, the mystery monster drops in to kill them. Thank goodness the editor maintains his erratic style. Are we awfully fast, or was that a jump cut? 
Oh, he's mangled in another horrible way I've never seen before. That guy's creative. But wait, the girl isn't dead. She's just malingering in the bushes somewhere, giving us a series of memorable music stings. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. After another person who I think is one of the scientists, but between doppelganger casting and overexposed film, it's hard to ID anybody in this movie. Anyway, this guy is murdered in a field again. And again, we cut to the missing astronaut's girlfriend and new scientist guy, Chris, out having a romantic dinner somewhere. She sure got over Frank in a hurry. In a reveal that is never explained, it seems that these two go way back. On par with the rest of this picture, the sound design leaves a little something to be desired. You remember that song? What song? Would you like to dance? No, not without music. That would be wrong. After a host segment that's basically a gag involving a silly game of keep away that drifts right into the movie theater, we join our film already in progress, where the diners have been called away to that field murder scene from two scenes previous, and our next goofy music cue. Oh, here comes that boat again. <laughs> Some nonsensical scenes, a new science guy, and we're off to the lab to grill the lady scientist. The dialogue is vague, but earnestly delivered. What about the Santidium 51 you were taking, the radiation repellent? Well, yes, we actually gave him lots more of these injections so that he could withstand all kinds of rays. We've been working on big gobs of neat stuff. The next couple of scenes are basically info dumps illustrating that this lab had been working on anti-radiation drugs and other stuff. It's convoluted, but the gist seems to be that the drug keeps the patient alive, but the patient begins to grow enormously in size. The latest victim of the mystery monster had developed an antidote, however, and the guy now running the lab has taken over the project. These kinds of scenes basically talk the audience half to death. Anyway, when the lady scientist finally leaves for the day, Voiceover guy barges in to fill us in on the facts. Dr. Logan ah! did know where the giant was, in a storeroom in that very building. Logan had learned that massive doses of the antidote brought about an almost human appearance. I did not quit but lying. such unpredictable side effects that enough tranquilizer to subdue ten ordinary men had to be given each day. On an empty stomach. This day, it Ooh. was late. Logan knew that each passing minute might mean a return to violence. Return to violence! He was too late. We was too late! Folks, I couldn't make this up if I tried. As Dr. Logan hurries to administer the sedative, even though the narrator has just told us that he's too late, the musical score is on the job. He's sneaking past Robert Fripp's room. Would somebody get the cat off the Fender Roads, please? From there, he looks like Skitch Henderson. Even though he's just discovered his patient is missing, supposedly, we get no reaction shot, and Dr. Logan just casually strolls back to the lab, accompanied by some spacey synth sounds. Oh, 
lucky man he was. There, he's mildly disappointed to find that the deranged astronaut has destroyed the lab, and that now there is no way to help him. Any hope that sufficient antidote might be compounded to have a lasting effect. All this vanished with one sweep of the monster's arm. Or any hope that the film would end soon. It might have been nice to show that scene with the monster, but use your imagination. It was true horror. Now, astronaut Frank is on the loose, and we get a clip of a tall, cadaverous guy in a spacesuit shambling around, terrorizing some sunbathers. Okay. Is it the Bangles? The Go Go's? The Lark Quartet? This is the agogo part here. Ah. Next, we cut back to NASA, I guess, and are treated to a close-up of a telephone. This is my favorite bit of inept sound design in this entire film, and probably any film ever. The phone rings. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Colonel Connors. Yeah? I made that phone noise. Was this just the onset sound cue that somebody forgot to dub over later? We may never know. Because this movie is all talk and no show, we now get some clumsy exposition about Frank's increasing range of lethal radioactivity, and our science and military guys pool their resources to find and neutralize the monster. I want the entire division, civilian forces, anything else that's available. He's got to be kept out of populated areas. Or it'll be bonkers. I want you with me every minute. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Luckily, the narrator swoops in to save the day, which is good because wide shots in the dark means we as the viewer have absolutely no idea what's happening on the screen. As the giant became bolder, his whereabouts were more easily tracked, and the army was called out in force. Because this was, after all, an American astronaut. Oh, right. Official orders were not to fire. <laughs> but one nervous soldier is all that is ever needed to start a panic. Oh, blame it on the little guy. <laughs> so the Army's on maneuvers on Maple Street, huh? And in Econoline vans. <laughs> uh, acceptable losses, everybody. Come on. <laughs> For the next host segment, Joel says he has some free time and can field some questions. Joel? Yeah. The pina colada song. Yeah. Well, uh, could you phrase it in the form of a question? Okay, Joel, what's the deal with the Pina Colada song? Oh, and I have a follow-up. The bots take issue with what's going on in this song, and both kind of go on rants. Okay, so this man and women are in this relationship for, oh, let's say eight months. Uh, that's the average national length of a dating relationship of males 18 to 34. And they don't even know that each other likes Pina Coladas? What, would they always panic and order Manhattans or something? Yeah, and wouldn't they probably already have been caught in the rain together? And, and, and then one of them at least mentioned that they liked getting caught in the rain? Mm -hmm. And if this couple, well, we'll call them Rick and Julie for the purposes of this argument. If Julie Julie and Rick have been together for any amount of time. Well, doesn't each of them have a responsibility to communicate to the other his or her dissatisfaction with the relationship? Yeah, because by responding to the personal ads, not only are they cheating on each other, they're cheating on each other with each other. To be honest, they bring up some really good points. Now, the situation in the movie is ramping up, and this calls for more conference table techno babble before we cut back to the National Guard running 
civil defense unit swung into action. The festive jitneys ran down the streets of Manila. Ah, uh, exact change only. City streets were cleared of all but official personnel, with the realization that even seeing the monster might mean that an individual was close enough to absorb a lethal dose of radioactivity. At this point, the padding comes on thick and heavy, with random shots of firefighters and deserted city streets. Hey, at least they were filming night for night. How you doing, Steve? Oh, not bad. How about you? Oh, pretty good. But right now, we'll join the auto show at McCormick the Place. The long wait began. And you're going to see every minute of it. <laughs> Isaac Hayes is Truck Turner. Uh, thanks, Mom. We'll walk from here. Now, I'll be back to pick you up after fireman practice. Whatever. Okay. That sound can mean only one thing. It's time for close-ups of the monster's feet. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time. Then it's more padding, shots of soldiers wandering around with Geiger counters, more fire trucks driving in, then an interminable scene of two guys kidding up in hazmat suits. There is one terrifying word in the world of nuclear physics. Oops. Radiation. Oh. They finally zero in on the radiation source in a drainage tunnel, and the hazmat guys go in to confront the menace. Will this film have an actual climax? Short answer, no. As if a switch had been turned, as if an eye had been blinked, as if some phantom force in the universe had made a move eons beyond our comprehension. As if we Suddenly, cared. there was no trail. Huh? There was no giant, no monster, no thing called Douglas to be followed. The there hell? was nothing in the tunnel but the puzzled men of courage who suddenly found themselves alone with shadows and darkness. There was no dignity for anyone who worked on this film. I have no words. Come on, let's call a movie on account of darkness. That's a wrap, everyone. Strike the set. Can't Turned out to be an alien snipe hunt. Go figure. Joel tries to cheer up the bots with a little let's pretend, but they're understandably traumatized. Meanwhile, the Mads taunt Joel by gloating about not being stuck in space. The big meanies. The stinger at the end of the credits is our monster staggering around, looking confused. More sad than horrific. Poor guy. Alcatraz. The Rock. No one has ever escaped from this prison. This is Frank Morris. Armed robbery. Burglary. Grand larceny. Morris has escaped from many prisons, but Alcatraz could be the exception. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz, and no one ever will. See you later, man. Goodbye. And no one ever will. In 1962, that statement was no longer valid. Clint Eastwood is Frank Morris in Escape from Alcatraz. A little bit before I go, you know... We've had a few times in the past where the plot of the film shown on Mystery Science Theater 3000 didn't make sense, and it turned out that the reason was because of the edits MST3K did for time. Not here. What was presented on this episode, sadly, was the complete film, if you want to call it a film. 
But don't feel bad for Bill Rabane. He went down to direct films like The Alpha Incident, The Giant Spider Invasion, and Invasion from Inner Earth. The Giant Spider Invasion, which I believe was also featured on Mystery Science Theater, was a film of questionable quality as well. Linda Gross for the Los Angeles Times called it a poorly done combination of science fiction, Jaws, and Day of the Locust. Yet, like many times with these So Bad It's Good films, it finds an audience. The film brought in $15 million, according to Bill Rabane. Hey, if you've got any thoughts on Monster A Go-Go, Bill Rabane, Herschel Gordon Lewis, or anything else, please send me an email. In fact, send me an email even if you just want to say hi. I'm at daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can use our Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. Or our Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to do another film based on a true story. The 1979 film Escape from Alcatraz, directed by Don Siegel and starring Clint Eastwood, Patrick McGowan, and Fred Ward. Join us to find out what they got right and what they made up. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Nancy Fry for contributing to today's show. I think both of our segments went on a little long, but but this movie deserved it. So take care. I'll be back next Monday. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. Lena, uh, multipass. You know this multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano?